As we come into our time and our service today of sharing with each other and with God our joys and our concerns, um, my encouragement to you all, my calling to you all, is to take this time to draw close to God, knowing that we have a God that hears our prayers, knowing that we serve a God who was not content to remain in the heavens apart from us, but stepped into this creation of time, space, and matter to come and be with us in our brokenness and to bridge the gap that separated us from him that we might share eternity with him. Gracious, holy, and loving God, Lord, we come to you today, your grateful and thankful people. We thank you as we come into this season of Advent that we get to celebrate again the good news of your sons coming into the world. And at the same time, we look forward with great anticipation to that second Advent when you come again, when you make all things new. And it is my belief that in this Advent of all others, that your people, your church, will hunger with even greater anticipation that great day when you make all things new again. Gracious God, we come to you praying your forgiveness where we have sinned and failed. We pray for your grace to forgive us, take us and shape us into the image of your Son that we might bear your light into the world. 
Gracious God, we pray for those who are sick and in need of healing. We pray that you touch them and that you give them the comfort that they need. We pray, Lord, for those who are struggling in so many different ways, financially, emotionally, spiritually. We pray that you would be our Emmanuel, God with us, in these days. Holy God, we come to you praying for our doctors and nurses, our military and our law enforcement, Lord, our healers and peacekeepers and peacemakers. We pray for all who serve, but especially the friends and family of these churches. We lift them up to you. Holy God, we come to you asking that you would be with our leaders in government, that you would give them wisdom from on high and work through them until that great day comes when your kingdom shall reign on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, Holy God, that you would work through us to reach out to those that do not know you. We pray in this Christmas, in this Advent season, that you would use us to share that gospel message with all who would hear it, that all might come to know the name of Jesus and be saved. Father God, all of these joys and concerns we bring to you this day, and we lay them down at your feet in the name of your Son, Jesus, knowing you hear our every prayer. And in the power of your Holy Spirit, we come to you this day asking that you would hear us and we continue to pray the prayer your son Jesus taught us to pray so long ago. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
Our scripture for today, if you have your Bibles with you and will join with me, we will be reading the, from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. We'll be reading verses 1 through 28. And I know last week I said we were done with Daniel, and one of the things you have to bear in mind is that I write my messages and my series generally at least a couple of months in advance, and so I tend to forget. <laughs> I'm a human being. I forget what I've written uh, until I get to it. And so, yeah, it didn't mean to fib last week. Uh, we are beginning our Advent series with Daniel, but we will move on from here. So this is the last of our Daniel messages, kind of a nice transition passage as we move in to this Christmas season. So Daniel chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. It says, Earlier during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, Daniel had a dream and saw visions as he lay in his bed. He wrote the, down the dream, and that is what he saw. In my vision that night, I, Daniel, saw a great storm churning on the surface of a great sea with strong winds blowing from every direction. Then four huge beasts came up out of the water, each different from the others. The first beast was like a lion with eagle's wings. As I watched, its wings were pulled off and it was left standing with its two hind feet on the ground like a human being. And it was given a human mind. Then I saw a second beast. And it looked like a bear. It was rearing up on one side and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And I heard a voice saying to it, get up, devour the flesh of many people. Then the third of these strange beasts appeared, and it looked like a leopard. It had four birds' wings on its back, and it had four heads. Great authority was given to this beast. Then in my vision that night I saw a fourth beast, terrifying, dreadful, and very strong. It devoured and crushed its victims with huge iron teeth and trampled their remains beneath its feet. It was different from any of the other beasts because it had ten horns. As I was looking at the horns, suddenly another small horn appeared among them. Three of the first horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. This little horn had eyes like human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. I watched as thrones were put in place, and the Ancient One sat down to judge. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair like purest wool. He sat on a fiery throne with wheels of blazing fire, and a river of fire was pouring out, flowing from his presence. Millions of angels ministered to him, many millions stood to attend him. Then the court began its session, and the books were opened. I continued to watch because I could hear the little horn's boastful speech. I kept watching until the fourth beast was killed and its body was destroyed by fire. The other three beasts had their authority taken from them, but they were all allowed to live a while longer. 
As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled by all I had seen, and my visions terrified me. So I approached one of those standing beside the throne and asked him what it all meant. He explained it to me like this. These four huge beasts represent four kingdoms that will arise from the earth. But in the end, the holy people of the Most High will be given the kingdom and they will rule forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, the one so different from the others and so terrifying. It had devoured and crushed its victims with iron teeth and bronze claws, trampling their remains beneath its feet. I also asked about the ten horns on the fourth beast's head and the little horn that came up afterward and destroyed three of the other horns. This horn had seemed greater than the others, and it had human eyes and a mouth that was boasting arrogantly. As I watched, this horn was waging war against God's holy people and was defeating them. Until the Ancient One, the Most High, came and judged in favor of his holy people. Then the time arrived for the holy people to take over the kingdom. Then he said to me, the fourth beast is the fourth world power that will rule the earth. It will be different from all the others. It will devour the whole world, trampling and crushing everything in its path. Its ten horns are ten kings who will rule that empire. Then another king will arise different from the other ten who will subdue three of them. He will defy the Most High and oppress the holy people of the Most High. He will try to change their sacred festivals and laws, and they will be placed under his control for a time, times, and half a time. But then the court will pass judgment, and all his power will be taken away and completely destroyed. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will last forever, and all rulers will serve and obey him. That was the end of the vision. I, Daniel, was terrified by my thoughts, and my face was pale with fear. But I kept these things to myself. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Welcome to Advent 2020. To give you all some context, I wrote this back at the end of September. I had no idea at that time what the world would look like by the end of November after the election and possibly, and as we know now, definitely after a COVID vaccine had been released and is in the process of approval. But the one thing I gambled on was that it being 2020, things certainly wouldn't be boring. And I trust that they are not. There have been so many of us over the course of this year just saying, let's get this year over with and hope 2021 is better. And I hope that it is. But that being said, if that is our attitude, we are going to constantly be looking for better days. That though I trust things will get better, they will likely not live up 
to expectations. Christmas time is a lot like that as I have gotten older. I love Christmas and everything that is connected to it. But it seems like every year I get to December 24th and just feel, well, tired. The Advent season is like the World Series of preaching that culminates in a big finish on Christmas Eve. And by the time the last round of Silent Night is sung, I'm ready for bed. Don't get me wrong, I love being a pastor. But I am learning that I need to adjust my expectations of Christmas and Advent if I'm going to truly be drawn close to God in this holy time of year. This year for Advent, I'm looking at the voices of the Old Testament that look for the return of God into the world, a time to come when the separation of heaven and earth would begin to come to an end. Many of these visions had double meanings, as we will see to some degree, but all are related in their envisioning of a time when God would make his home with humanity. And as Advent culminates in the celebration of Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ, God the Son, it is my hope that seeing the anticipation of God's people over his promised first coming will help us to adjust our expectations of Christmas and make it a time of drawing near to God, looking for his great return, as Jesus is God with us. This passage of the book of Daniel is one that has been examined and debated and talked about by theologians for many centuries concerning what it means. I'm not going to get into really deep details as to who each of these beasts represent because that is one of the main points of debate. But the first thing worth noting and the thing that I think is universally accepted by most theologians is that each of these beasts represent the various empires that would rise and fall between the time of Daniel and up to and into, possibly, the time of the coming of Jesus. In essence, Daniel has envisioned the flow of human history. One thing worth noting is that each of these beasts comes out of the sea. And for ancient Israel, the sea represented the chaos. Uh, when you read the book of Genesis, when it begins, it talks about the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. The intent there is to describe a universe or a, we would say, pre-universe in chaos. And God is the one who brings order to it. And so the waters have always represented spiritual and physical chaos. The people of Israel were never a seafaring people. They were very much afraid of the great sea, the Mediterranean. We were given this picture of the flow of history, each empire following one after the other, 
And each empire that follows the next is flawed and broken and violent. They each represent the violence and destruction of human rule. In essence, it represents humanity's broken attempt to rule the world outside of God's plans for creation. Depending on who you talk to, we can say that these empires represent those from Babylon through the Greek, the you would say the Alexandrian Empire, up to and possibly including the Roman era. Depending on who you talk to, the last beast is either the Roman Empire or it's the Seleucid kings who are quite cruel to the people of Israel. Daniel lived in a turbulent Time. This is after the captivity. The, the people of Israel were sent into captivity. They're in exile. And they're looking for and they are yearning for a time when the kingdom would be returned to them. When the world would be set to rights. When God would come and be with them again. Because some of the other prophets referred to when the temple was destroyed. Ezekiel actually sees the, the spirit of God leaving Israel both as a symbol of God abandoning the nation itself, but also, rather than just leaving, he goes and follows his people into captivity. So he's with them. The reason why it all happened is because the people of Israel had not lived up to their part of the covenant. They had been called to be God's light to the world, to draw all nations to him, and they had not. In our country, political animosity has hit a fever pitch. All the way up to this previous election, I imagine it will not get better anytime soon. We live in an age dominated in many ways by secular empires wielding their strength against each other, rattling the saber, seeking to gain supremacy. Now we, as human beings, tend to respond to this through political action, voting, protesting, campaigning, etc. Or political inaction due to apathy and despair over the system. What we tend to not do is realize the spiritual implications of what is going on. And this might be something that might be new for some of you. This might be somewhat challenging for some of you, but I'm going to get into not explaining necessarily who each of these beasts represent, but I want to get into the deeper matter of what they represent. There is a concept in the Old Testament that theologians refer to as the heavenly court. And we get kind of an image of this in the book of Daniel because it talks about thrones being set up and God beginning his judgment. But it doesn't say one throne. It says a series of thrones. Obviously, God is over all of them. But there is this sense that there are other spiritual beings involved. There is this belief amongst ancient Israel that God ruled over all, but that he had created spiritual beings to help rule in the creation. And when we see the descriptions of these various beasts, they all, in a way, represent twisted reimaginings 
of what some popular conceptions of the day were of what these spiritual beings looked like. <clears throat> and what this gets into, I know I'm kind of dragging this on here, is that the belief was that behind every secular empire, there was a spiritual being that guided the course of that empire. In essence, saying that there was an angel in charge of guiding the destiny of every nation. God at one point says, all these other nations, I let the other spiritual beings guide, but my nation, the one that I have set apart for myself, is Israel. All the world is God's, but he has delegated this authority to these other spiritual beings. Now what happens, if you read between the lines of the Old Testament, is that there is a spiritual rebellion. These various spiritual beings all decide at some point or another that maybe they could rule things better than the Ancient One, than God the Father. And so what we end up with is that all earthly governments, institutions, and armies are, in essence, kind of behind the curtain, ruled and governed by these various corrupted spiritual beings. Many of them want to be worshipped as gods themselves rather than serve the true God, which was their calling and which they failed. So if we look at the turmoil that we have in our world, and this is the point that I'm getting at, when we look at the turmoil that we have in our world, when we see news headlines talking about the struggle of our government and the coronavirus, when we see headlines talking about China and the United States government and other governments at odds with each other, we need to realize that, yes, it's human beings involved in this, but behind the scenes there are spiritual powers and authorities at work. Hence, we have turmoil in governments and in the institutions of our world. And so we've seen this image now in Daniel of the path of human history, and it really doesn't look very bright at all. We see that no matter what happens, each empire rises with this sense of, oh, we're going to get it right this time, only to devolve into the same barbarity and debauchery as previous empires before. And this is hearkening back to Genesis when humanity was called to be God's co-workers in the creation and we decided instead to do things our own way. But then Daniel has a vision, another vision. He describes one that looks like a son of man. One who would do and who would be what humans were meant to be. He would fulfill the obligations of humanity to be what humans were meant to be. But there's something interesting here. This isn't just a man because he's also described as being a cloud rider. He comes with clouds. And then something really strange happens. He's taken into the presence of the Ancient One. And he is set on a throne beside the Ancient One. In other words, he's placed on equal footing with Yahweh. He does Yahweh stuff. 
He rides on the clouds like Yahweh. He comes into the world like Yahweh. And yet he's also a human being. He's a man, but not just a man. For lack of a better term, I refer to this passage as the description of the God-man. In the garden, we had been called to be God's partners in the creation. The garden was never meant to be the end point. People talk about the perfection of the garden, and it was perfect in the sense that it was the perfect beginning, but God never meant for creation to just sit stagnant. It was the perfect beginning, but we took the wrong path. God said, rule with me. And the temptation of the serpent was to rule on your own. And we took the bait. It is, in essence, the allegory of paradise lost. I'm not saying that Genesis is an allegory, but I'm saying that this is the penultimate example of this notion of paradise lost. But by God becoming man, he has bridged the gap between heaven and earth and the promise of a world where we don't see the corruption, the violence and other heartbreaking things that we see in our world today will come to pass. It is a vision of a time to come when justice and peace will rule. And it is a vision that becomes reality when a young woman gives birth to a baby boy in a stable many years later. And it is a reality that exists today for those willing to reject the fallen powers of this world, both spiritual and physical, and declare their allegiance not to a president, not to a king or a queen or a general, but to declare their allegiance to the Son of Man. The good news is the endless cycle of empires rising, becoming corrupt and collapsing will not be forever. We have a king that will reign forever with truth and justice, and we will look even more at the attributes of this boy king who is the son of man envisioned by Daniel. But that will have to wait until next week. The good news for today is that the beasts will not always rule. Their time is numbered, and they are already judged. And the Son of Man is coming again in His glory, likely sooner than many expect. Amen.
Gracious, holy, and loving God, as we depart here today on this first Sunday of Advent, my prayer is that you will be with us in this time, that you would help us to draw to you. Help us to see that you are making all things new. That we do not have to be troubled by the news headlines that we see. But we can put our faith and trust in you. Knowing that the Son of Man has already come. And he is coming again to bring your always and forever kingdom. We praise you and we thank you as we go into this day. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. And go in peace. Thank you.